Tonight's teaching again is the opening verses of Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And again, we are examining the intro to a doctor's gospel, and it starts like this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things they have, that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. This is God's word, and we're going to divide the teaching tonight into these three basic points. We're going to do, since Luke writes the whole gospel, obviously, we'll do a little bit of an introduction to who Dr. Luke actually is. We're going to talk about why it is a reliable gospel that we can trust, and then we're going to talk about the difference between knowing truth and submitting to truth. Knowing the truths about Jesus Christ and putting the full weight of faith in your life into that truth, operating out of that truth, okay? So Dr. Luke, a reliable gospel and trusting a reliable gospel. First of all, Dr. Luke, the first manuscript, the oldest manuscript we have, portion of Luke's gospel, comes from about 175 A.D., and at the end of that manuscript is written the gospel according to Luke. Now, that is really early. Now, it's not when the, the gospel is written, but that is a very early copy of the original, 175 AD. And that's part of the reason why no, none of the early Christians ever doubted that this gospel was written by Luke. Okay, so it was widespread acceptance in the early Christian church without any doubt that this character, Luke, is the one who wrote it. But who exactly is Luke? couple quick things that help us understand who this guy is. Number one, we know he's a ministry colleague of the Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul mentions him in his letters on numerous occasions. Number two, we know that he uh, joined Paul on his missionary journeys. And in fact, um, he is the author of the book of Acts. So it's very interesting when you read through Acts, uh, Luke Again, assuming he's the author, he writes about the early Christian church and then about Peter and then about Paul, his conversion from Saul of Tarsus to the Apostle Paul. And then in the middle of the book of Acts, he starts switching to the first person plural pronoun. So he starts saying we and us, which means he must have jumped into the story at some point in time in the middle of the book of Acts on Paul's journeys, okay? Thirdly, we know that whoever wrote the book of Acts is the same person who wrote the third gospel because the book of Acts is written to a guy named Theophilus. It says, in my former book, Theophilus, and we just read a text, the third gospel, that says, to you, most excellent Theophilus, so whoever the writer is, is the same guy, okay? They use approximately the same verbiage. If you put them on a shelf, they, you would see that they very clearly are twin companions. It's a set. They're designed to go together. They're within 3% size of one another. Very clearly the exact same author. And then fourthly, we also find that in the Apostle Paul's writings, he refers to Luke, my dear friend, as the doctor. Okay? So, and by the way, a lot of people have um, their doctorates today in a variety of different fields, and there's all sorts of interesting things about that. But 
Uh, back in that day and age, it always referred to a medical doctor. And you can actually see that in the third gospel and in Acts as well because there is medical verbiage that is used that would not have been commonly used to the average person who was not in healthcare at the time. So for instance, when Luke describes Jesus' healing miracles, he uses phrases that very clearly are technical terms that only a healthcare professional would have used. So in summary then, who's Luke? He's highly educated, he's a gifted writer, he's a physician, which he probably uses as kind of a side job to bankroll his ministry, just like the Apostle Paul used tent making. And um, so it finances his ministry sort of on the side, but his ministry, his life is dedicated to gospel mission work. And in fact, he is going to write two of the largest and most important documents of the New Testament, the third gospel and the book of the Acts of the Apostles from a place called Syrian Antioch, which is the launching pad for uh, the Apostle Paul's mission work. And he does so from approximately the 60s AD to about 80 AD or the common era, okay? That's the what, why, what is the purpose? Every gospel, the fact that we have four gospels is fascinating for a variety of reasons, but what is the unique aim of Luke's gospel? He, well, he tells us right here in the beginning, He is trying to clear up all the bad misinformation that exists out there that has crept into the cultural uh, collective ethos about Jesus and clear it up. See, Luke is a man of science. He's a doctor. He's not concerned about your opinions about Jesus. He's not that into your feelings about Jesus. He's not that into your rumors and myths and legends religiously about Jesus. He wants the cold, hard facts, eyewitness testimony and verification of what actually happened in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's what he actually tells us at the beginning of this whole thing. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account. In other words, I'm not the first person to do this, but I'm gonna do the best job of it. Many many people have tried to, not only some of the other gospel writers, but other people were trying to write some things down about Jesus. Many have tried this of the things that have been fulfilled among us. In other words, it's the fulfillment of prophecy. I myself carefully did the research. I investigated everything from the beginning and I have decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know with certainty the things of which you have been taught. Now again, that phrase, most excellent Theophilus, Theophilus is a Greek name that means lover of God. And some Bible commentators have actually suggested maybe this is just a general introduction, like he's writing it to any believers out there, any Christian, any lovers of God. I don't buy it. And I, I'm not gonna take the time to go fully into that, but the, even the descriptions like most excellent Theophilus, uh, it seems like Theophilus is sort of a wealthy aristocrat who has perhaps even financed the research attached to Luke's writing. And he wants to know, again, the cold hard facts based on research and data about who Jesus actually was. In other words, Luke writes to Theophilus and essentially is saying, here's how you explain the gospel of Jesus Christ to your educated and cultured friends. Now, there's one other aspect about the content of it that I just want to touch on because every gospel, while they necessarily cover the salvation story, you know, the ministry of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, each one of them, because they're written from slightly different people to two different people, they have their own slightly different aim. And one of the unique aspects of Luke's gospel, in addition to the medical detail, is the compassion 
So Luke very clearly wants to point out the particular sensitivity that Jesus has for the marginalized and the outcasts of society. He's constantly telling stories about uh, the religiously unfit and the immoral and the diseased and the Gentiles, and for that matter, the women. Anybody who was pushed out were outcasts from the inside of society at the time. It's only, only and exclusively in Luke's gospel that we get the story of the Good Samaritan. It is only and exclusively in the account of Luke's gospel that we get the lost parables, like the parable of the, the prodigal son. Okay, so if you, all I'm saying is if you are the type of person who uh, has one of those hearts for the marginalized, left for dead, those that society tends to write off and consider beyond hope, Luke's gospel is gonna resonate with you as we move through it, okay? Uh, so, okay, so that's who it is. He's writing what we're gonna call a reliable gospel. And what that means, you can trust it largely because of this principle called eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony is still a huge deal today. Um, in a courtroom setting, one of the most biggest pieces of evidence, uh, one of the biggest, uh, most persuasive pieces of information, I should say, is when you have multiple reliable eyewitnesses. They're important today. They were absolutely essential back then if you were gonna validate anything as true because today you also have things like forensic evidence. Today you have things like written testimony and even digital testimony, right? But back then, all you had was eyewitness testimony. And again, even today, we have the understanding that if you have you know, eyewitness testimony, the only way you can fully trust it is if everybody has equal access to the information. And so there's a difference, for instance, between uh, courtroom testimony and documentary testimony. So a uh, good example of this might be the documentary series that launched Netflix's kind of like original productions uh, six, seven years ago was Making a Murderer, right? That's particularly interesting to us who live in southeastern Wisconsin, who some of us were born and raised in the Manitowoc area or know a bunch of people from there. And so an example would be Aid actually works with an individual who is really essential in the plot line of the Making a Murderer documentary series, who wasn't actually interviewed. And if you would go and talk to this person, and she has, about the events of what happened on that series, that individual would say it was nothing like the way they portrayed it, right? The filmmakers have an agenda, and they have a story that they want to tell, so they pick and choose which information they want to conclude or want to include which is different from a courtroom setting where everybody has equal access to all of the witnesses. And therefore, not only is it important to have eyewitness testimony, it's also important that people are able to investigate those eyewitness testimonies themselves. And here's why the Gospels, and in fact having four Gospels with eyewitnesses is so incredible. Because, look, the reason you can trust the Gospels is because you have the validity of living eyewitnesses that can themselves be interviewed, and that establishes at least three important, but I'm gonna keep the three important points tonight, that the gospels were written, the Christian gospels were written early, they were written with far too much detail to ever be considered legends, and they were written with an angle on them that's so counterintuitive to the reputation of the characters involved that it can't be fabricated, it can't be made up. Now let me explain this real quick. Okay, number one, the Gospels are far too early to be fabrications. Uh, secular scholars will say that the Christian Gospels are written in the first century AD. That's different from like, 
Remember when Dan Brown was cranking out New York Times bestsellers and it was all based on something called the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Judas and the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary? See, Dan Brown's not an actual historian and any actual historian that you talk to would say, yeah, those were dismissed by the church early on because they were written several centuries A.D., There was no living witnesses and they were completely discredited and did not match up with what the actual eyewitnesses said and saw. The four Christian gospels, including the gospel of Luke, were written in the first century AD when you had living witnesses. In other words, the reason that you can trust the gospel of Luke and the other gospels is the same reason that you can trust Wikipedia. You know how Wikipedia works? If you've written a research paper in the 21st century, you know how Wikipedia works because you've You've leaned on it heavily a lot of the time, right? Wikipedia, what it essentially is, it's, it's wiki encyclopedia. What that means, wiki means, very uh, technically, what it means is publicly, collaboratively edited. Very important. Publicly, collaboratively edited. Now, when Wikipedia first became a thing in the early 2000s, it was looked at as kind of a joke because anybody could submit any entry that they wanted and how, if you, how do you know if you can trust this kind of stuff. However, after a couple of years, once it gained some steam, what they realized is Wikipedia functionally shut down the production of all printed encyclopedias out there because it was always more reliable than even the most recently published encyclopedias like Britannica or whatever else. Now, how is that possible? It's possible because of publicly, collaboratively edited documentation. In order to submit something on Wikipedia, what you need to do is you need to, number one, provide a citation that's been verified through other researchers. And number two, it needs to be, that we talk about this in science all the time in the medical community, peer-reviewed, right? There have to be a community of people who have said, yep, that's exactly how that happened. And therefore, if I say, okay, uh, an entry on Abraham Lincoln, I personally feel that Abraham Lincoln was a female salsa dancer in the 1400s in Spain. That's what I think about Abraham Lincoln. The community will say no, 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 and no. Why? Number one, I don't have any citation for it. Number two, the rest of the community knows details to the contrary of that, so they will reject it. And the same reason that you can trust Wikipedia is the same reason that the early gospels are trustable and reliable. Why? Because even secular scholars date For instance, Luke's gospel is typically dated between about mid-60s and 80 AD, common era. Which means if Jesus died and rose from the grave around 30 AD, that puts, for argument's sake, Luke's gospel about 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. You cannot fabricate a story about a famous individual who claims to be a Messiah to die and rise 40 years posthumously. That would be like if I said, 40 years ago, aliens landed in downtown Milwaukee and it's totally true and you should believe it. People would say, no, 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 no. Why? Because 40 years ago, that's 1980, okay? We have journalist records, we have law enforcement records, and most importantly, we have people who were living here at that time. 40 years ago, it's not that they would say, yeah, I was here. That's not how that happened, you know? You cannot fabricate something like that within 40 years amount of time. Uh, Even if you think, okay, well, people's memories are maybe fuzzy after 40 years, ask someone in their 50s if they remember their high school years. Yes, of course they do, with a shocking amount of detail sometimes. 
And therefore, if you were trying to get somebody, if you were trying to create a lie that you wanted everybody to believe about a famous messianic character who led a worldwide known movement, you couldn't just make up a lie 40 years later and expect it to get off the ground because people would say, no, 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 that's not how that happened. You have living witnesses. Not to mention the fact that you wouldn't get tens of thousands of people within the subsequent years to start following it. It doesn't work like that. Uh, the, the testimony and the legitimacy of early eyewitnesses, the Gospels are far too early to be any kind of fabrication. Which again, by the way, the Gnostic Gospels, the very reason why you can't trust them is because they're written several hundred years later. Totally different kind of thing. The Gospels are way too early to simply be lies. Secondly, another reason you can trust the Gospels is because they're way too detailed to be legends or myths. Um, there's hundreds and hundreds of examples of this. I'll just give you one or two. My favorite one, I think, is in John chapter 8. In John 8, there's a famous story of a woman who's caught in adultery by the Pharisees. And she is brought to Jesus and they want to ask Jesus if it's okay to stone her to death for what she's done. And when they come to Jesus, he's writing something on the ground. And he gets up and he says, okay, whoever of you is not committed any sins, you can be the first one to cast the stone. And he crouches back down on the ground and we're told starts drawing something again. And one by one, they start to fall away and eventually he stands up again and it's just him and the woman who is accused. And he says, ah, I see that none of them were able to condemn you. Neither do I condemn you and now go and leave your life of sin. And then he gets back down on the ground and he starts drawing again. Fascinating question to the story. What on earth is he so preoccupied with drawing in the sand? What's the answer? We have no idea. So why include it in the account? How does this advance the narrative at all? In other words, if somebody's just making up a story, why on earth would you conclude, uh, include a detail like that? It doesn't advance the plot whatsoever. The answer is, you wouldn't. The only reason you would record it that way is if that's just what happened. See? It's not a fabricated story. It's a true story. Uh, another example of this would be um, John 21. After the resurrection, John and Peter, who are fishermen by trade, are out fishing again. They're going to have this meetup with Jesus, but we're told they bring in a great haul of fish. And specifically, we're told that they brought in 153 fish that day. You know what the significance of 153 fish is? There isn't. It does not advance the plot line whatsoever. So why on earth are you bothering telling us about 153 fish? The only reason you would record it is if that's the way it actually happened. Okay, so when people will suggest, yeah, there's a lot of ancient myths and legends and stories like that, they don't understand. That's not at all the way that the Gospels themselves are recorded. Uh, if you, I mean, if you took a high school literature class, you know if you read Beowulf or the Iliad and the Odyssey, the Gospels do not read at all like those kind of myth literature. Uh, in the ancient times, there's myth literature and there is such a thing as historical recording. There's lots of historians. But the genre of literature known as historical realistic fiction doesn't actually come into existence until the 18th century Western world. And so what you're suggesting is very clearly, if you read it, these are not, these are not myths. And if you're suggesting that they're realistic historical fiction, what you're suggesting is some largely uneducated fishermen invented a literary genre that wasn't duplicated until 1700 years later, which also doesn't seem like a plausible explanation. 
The best explanation is this is just historical recording, but it happens to be of extraordinary events. Um, C.S. Lewis, who understands the literature genre obviously a lot better than I do, once said something really famous about this that is kind of like the the end of the argument. Uh, People forget C.S. Lewis was not only a great fiction writer himself, Chronicles of Narnia, he was not only a great Christian apologist, mere Christianity, uh, but he's also, he was one of the premier literary scholars, especially ancient literature on planet Earth at the time. He was a professor at Oxford and Cambridge and one time somebody asked him, about the Gospels perhaps just being myth or legend, and his response to it was this. He says, look, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all of my life. I know exactly what they look like. This, the Gospels, I know that this is not one of them. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either it is reportage, as in historical recording, or else someone unknown, an unknown writer in the second century without no, known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. And he goes on to say, the reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. Which is a little condescending, but nonetheless he's making his point. Okay? I understand the concept of literature better than you do. If you think this is some kind of legend, you just, you, you don't know what you're talking about. Okay? Thirdly, we can trust the Gospels uh, in their eyewitness testimony because they're counterproductive. In other words, sometimes people say, well, you can't trust the Bible because it's written by Christians. Okay, yeah, they do have an agenda, yeah, but if they're the ones writing it for their own personal agenda, why do they make themselves look like such idiots so often? You know, like if they're trying to gain some kind of fame or popularity out of this, why would you include the details that they include? Why would the disciples make themselves look like faithless cowards who are often pridefully arguing with one another and who desert the Messiah at the time of his death. Why? You wouldn't include Peter's impetuous stupidity in the whole process. You wouldn't, if you wanted to get people to follow a Messiah and you were just conjuring something up, you would not write the story about the Messiah being born to an unwed mother, which would have been shameful at the time, or the Messiah being so lowly that he was born in a manger. Uh, If you wanted to legitimize the gospel, you would not say that the first eyewitnesses, you would not take the gospel first to uh, the shepherds who did not have any legal uh, representation and incredible witness in the Roman court system at the time at Christmas and you would not let the first uh, witnesses to the empty tomb on Easter Sunday be women who also had no credible legal witness at the time. If you're you're inventing it, you wouldn't just write it that way. If you're just trying, like even Jesus Just think about this. If you are trying to convince people to believe him and present him as simply a hero, why include the stuff about his reservations in the Garden of Gethsemane? And why include his cries out to his father on the cross? You wouldn't. If you're simply trying to manufacture some winsome document to trick people into believing something, you would never, ever, ever write it this way. And therefore, the most reasonable explanation of what we have before us is this is simply the way it happened. And as C.S. Lewis said, somebody who doesn't get that, perhaps, just hasn't thought that through that very, very carefully. It's easy to dismiss. Okay, final point. There's a difference between recognizing that the Bible is true history and putting your trust in it, okay? Um, there's, there's uh, I've used the example before, there's a difference between downloading a program onto your computer and installing it on your hard drive. 
You know, like the, it has to become, how does the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ become the operating principle of your life so that you put the full weight of your faith and your trust into it? Well, this is why we'll go back to our first lesson. Remember that story? The account of the Emmaus disciples? What's going on there is the Emmaus disciples are two individuals who went to Jerusalem at Passover, who believed that it's quite possible Jesus of Nazareth is in fact the promised Messiah of the Old Testament scriptures. However, he was crucified and they weren't completely sure about his resurrection and therefore they're a little dismayed and disappointed by the whole thing. And on Easter Sunday afternoon, they're walking out of Jerusalem, walking back home and they're gonna stop at this place several miles outside of Jerusalem called Emmaus. And they're, they're discussing this amongst themselves and they're a little disenchanted with it and some other traveler appears alongside them and says, hey, what are you guys so downcast about? What's the problem? Now we find out this is actually Jesus disguising himself to them. They don't recognize him, but they ask, he asks them about what they're talking. They said, haven't you heard about what happened with Jesus of Nazareth? So everybody knows what's going on publicly at the time. And we're told at that point, Jesus begins to explain to them from the law and the prophets, from Moses and the prophets, how Jesus of Nazareth was in fact the fulfillment of all messianic prophecy. We're told they're incredibly fascinated by this and when they eventually get to their their town here in Emmaus, Jesus is gonna continue to walk by but they're so intrigued but that they ask him to come in and sit down and have dinner with them and the moment that they break bread, we're told their eyes are opened, they recognize it's Jesus, he disappears And at that moment, they say, wait a second. Were not our hearts burning within us while we talked, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? What does this mean? This is is a huge concept. Just, let's just pause on this real quick, okay? What this has to mean is before the Emmaus disciples intellectually comprehended Jesus, they sensed him in their hearts before uh, their, their hearts were on fire before their heads fully grasped it. They had some kind of subjective awareness of what was going on before they objectively understood Jesus. Now, here's what this means. I've given you some logical arguments tonight for why you can trust the gospel records and logical arguments are entirely necessary in the Christian faith. You have to be able to give rational explanations for not just what you believe, but why you believe what you believe. We always must be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have. Rational arguments are absolutely necessary, but they're also not sufficient, okay? They're necessary, but not sufficient. Rational, you cannot logically argue somebody into the Christian faith. Why? Because heads don't burn. Hearts burn. Heads don't, if your head burns, you need to get COVID tested. You probably, you know, that's a fever. Heads shouldn't burn. Hearts, well, you could say, even somebody will say, well, what about antacid? So hearts maybe shouldn't burn either. But you know what I mean? Don't be, don't push back on me here. This is just, hearts burn because they're passionate and they believe. So the question, the the application question is, how do you get the truth of Jesus Christ to be something that is not simply in your head, but something that is the operational principle of your heart? And to answer that, I'll give you one thought and two real practical actions, okay? One thought. First of all, the thought is that the message and gospel of Jesus Christ has to become the greatest story ever told in your life. And here's what I mean. Some people actually, I've been scolded before, 
for uh, using the, the word story to describe the Bible or the Gospels or the message of Jesus Christ. And, and number one, those people are wrong when they scold me. And I'll explain to you why they're wrong. But they're wrong because what they think is a story is always or often uh, fictional. That's true. There are fictional stories, but Fictional is not the definition in the essence of a story because all of us have stories about when we were kids. doesn't mean that they're untrue. Uh, in other words, the essence of a story is not that it's untrue or fictional. The essence of a story is that it has a narrative arc. And the Bible has a narrative arc and the Gospels have a narrative arc. And what's really dangerous is if you refuse to use the word story to describe what happens in the Bible, then all it is is it's an anthology and a compendium and vignettes about who Jesus is, what he taught, and what he commanded. Interestingly enough, the people who have scolded me for using the term story when I describe the Gospel of Jesus oftentimes tend to veer a little bit self-righteous in what they do. Uh, if the gospel is not a story to you, again, all it is, what the gospel becomes, what the, the, the narratives of the New Testament become is they become the teachings of Jesus Christ and they become the commands of Jesus Christ and the insinuation is to the degree that you understand them and know them and systematize them, to the degree that you submit to them, to that degree you can have salvation. The gospel is not primarily, it's, it's good news, it's not good advice. It's not primarily teaching about what you must do and what you must believe. It's the story about how Jesus loved you enough to die in your place for your sins at the cross and how he's powerful enough to conquer your enemies like sin, Satan, and death, which conquers all your lesser enemies like fear and anxiety and insecurity and, and, and worry and all that stuff. He's conquered your enemies He's, he's, he's the protagonist. He's conquered in the conflict and you reap the benefits of that. In other words, let me put it like this. The climax of the Gospels is not the Sermon on the Mount. The climax of the Gospels is Jesus' death and resurrection. And therefore, the Gospels are not primarily Jesus' teaching as beautiful and as relevant as they are. They're not his teaching to you. The primary essence of the Gospels is the action that Jesus has taken for you, Okay? You have to receive the gospel as the greatest story ever told. Secondly, again, story doesn't make it fictional. It's the greatest true story ever told and it's the story from which all the other good things from other stories actually trace their roots to and their power from. The action steps. Um, remember when the gospel clicked for the Emmaus disciples? Remember when? It was the moment they broke bread with Jesus. What does that mean? Breaking bread, we still use that as a metaphor today for like friendship and interaction with one another. In biblical times, breaking bread meant two things. Breaking bread uh, referred to friendship and like enjoying one another's company in a meal and it referred to corporate worship because in corporate worship, what we do is we gather together with the body of the Christ and we celebrate the Lord's Supper as we're going to do here tonight in which we break bread with one another, Right? And therefore, what this essentially means is studying God's word is absolutely necessary and absolutely essential. Facts are necessary for your faith, but they're not sufficient. And if you want the story, the true story of Jesus Christ to become the operating principle of your life, the operating truth of your life, what it means is you must gather with fellow Christians to break bread which means you must worship together with them and celebrate the Lord's Supper with them. And it means you must befriend them in transparent, encouraging types of ways. 
generally speaking around here, we talk about those as like small groups and growth groups. It's corporately worshiping together and it's befriending one another in the privacy of our day-to-day lives. Tonight, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together and this is one more concrete step for a true gospel and a risen Savior to become subjectively even more real and active in our lives. So let's ask for his blessing. Lord Jesus, your word is truth and it is life-giving. It exposes, operates, and heals. Bless our study in the coming months of Luke's gospel. Grant us willing spirits to submit to all of your word. We ask this in your name and seek your glory. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.